0: Amen. By right, this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss our children with Mario and Kimberly to Children's Church, kindergarten through fifth grade. <clears throat> as the ankle biters are heading, I mean, the children are are, are heading out. Uh, you know, I was sitting here this uh, this week, and and uh, I was showing up, and I showed up just as they were finishing the bricks. And as I drove up, I said, oh no. I said, those bricks don't look anything like the." Now, I realized that they were wet and they still need to be cleaned and all this kind of stuff. And as they dried, they they began to look more and more like a better match. And uh, they still uh, uh, have a little bit of cleaning up that they need to do so that they'll match better. But as they were doing the construction uh, this week, I began to to think about the, the Lord really was working on me in my own heart. Uh, and how the Lord is, is constructing and the Lord is, is renovating my life. And as we become a child of God, as we become a child of God, there's a work of renovation that begins in our life where, where he begins to tear out the old stuff. And he begins to replace it with the new. And he begins to replace it with that which honors him. And, and as, I was, as I was watching this and, and as the Lord was speaking to my heart about all this, he reminded me that, that even in the renovation that takes place in our life today, it is an imperfect renovation. Because even as the Lord is sanctifying me, and even as the Lord is, is doing a work in my heart, I am still broken and I am still a sinner. And even though we're gonna we're gonna do all this work and we're gonna we're gonna turn the sanctuary and we're asking you guys to continue to pray about continue to give towards that we're we're a few thousand dollars short of our goal uh, but but by the grace of God we're going to meet it very very quickly uh, but but as we do this project we're gonna get on the other side of this and we're gonna you know the the seating gonna be changed and bless God we're gonna be able to give uh, to a church in Monroe and and we're gonna uh, have uh, different. No longer are we going to uh, be able to enjoy the beauty of the pink mauve carpet. Uh, no longer are we going to enjoy the, the pink pews, but we're going to have a renovated sanctuary. On the other side, it's not going to be perfect. There are going to be mistakes. We're going to see, man, you know, if we had it to do over again. I wish we would do this. Or I wish we would do that. And that reminds us that, that even in our lives, as God is sanctifying us and as he's making us into the image of his son, on this side of glory, we are still broken. But there's coming a day when we will when we will have a new body, a new, a new resurrected, glorified body, and there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more sin, and we'll be with him in glory. That, that, that was free for those of you who are keeping track. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 15. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 15. Verses 29 through 39 this morning, Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39, as we continue to walk through the book of Matthew, uh, and this is for you, Pastor Steve, uh, whenever we're reading out of the book of Matthew, we understand that Matthew was written by Matthew, oh, 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 okay, clearly, clearly y'all, y- y'all weren't ready for that. So we understand that the book of Matthew was written by Matthew, and the book of Matthew was written to The Jews, and the book of Matthew was written to present Jesus as the son of David. See, Pastor Steve, they do listen. They do listen. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. And departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there. And great multitudes came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, and many others, as they laid him down at his feet. And they were he-, and he healed them. And so the multitude marveled and they saw the dumb speaking and the crippled restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the multitudes because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I do not wish to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven and a few small fish. He directed the multitudes to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish, giving thanks, he broke them, started giving them to the disciples and the disciples in turn to the multitudes and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men beside the women and children, sending away the multitudes. He got into a boat and came to the region of Magnum. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning that as we look at this passage, Lord, that we may see your Holy Spirit, that we may see Christ exalted that we may see the needs met. Lord, this morning, may Jesus be made new and fresh to us. May we see our needs here this morning. And may we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in this passage very similar to the passage that we read just a few months back where Jesus fed the 5,000. Here Jesus feeds 4,000, there he fed 5,000. But I want to point out that this passage in here in Matthew chapter 15 is in contrast to the passage that we read earlier in Matthew chapter 13 whenever Jesus feeds the 5,000. First of all, if we remember, the group that gathered there in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus fed the five thousands, was a group of Jewish believers, they were, or they were a group of Jews, they were a group who gathered there, and Jesus was presented, if you remember, Jesus was presented as a new and better Moses. We saw Jesus being compared and contrasted to Moses, how Moses fed the, the people in the wilderness with manna from heaven, how God had, had used Moses as a tool, as an instrument, and that Jesus was that new and better Moses. Jesus was that, that Moses who, who would not only feed the people now, but that he would give them a spiritual food, that he would give them the bread of life. And so we, we see that contrast there. And if you remember, at the end they, fic- they picked up 12 basketfuls And we see the symbolism there for the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it is is clearly a Jewish audience. It is clearly a Jewish people who are being fed. It is clearly directed to present Jesus as, as a mosaic figure, as a new and better Moses. And here, there's something distinctly different about the context. Jesus has just come from the region. Uh, if you go back up in Matthew chapter 15, at the beginning of, uh, of Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, Jesus went away from there and he withdrew to a district of Tyre and Sidon. This is an area uh, that was mainly Gentile. This is an area that was that was not Jewish specifically. There, Jesus met a Canaanite woman, and so we see the setting around this miracle is distinctly different than the setting was in the previous miracle and so here jesus is presented and the the message for the israelite audience remember the audience of the book of matthew was to was the uh jesus matthew is writing to the jews to present jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecy to present jesus as the son of david and so here to the jewish audience Matthew is being sure to communicate that not only is Jesus a new and better Moses, not only is he that figure who is going to provide salvation for the Jewish people, but here in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is also going to meet the needs of the Gentiles. That Jesus is also going to be the fulfillment of the son of David, the Messiah, not just for the Jews, But for the Gentiles also Romans chapter 1 verse 16 Paul said I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of salvation to all who believe to the Jew first because Jesus was a Jew presented to the Jews but also to the Gentiles also to the Gentiles. Now Israel had a very closed minded a very a very uh, small understanding of the Messiahship, and a very small, a very limited understanding of the God of Israel. They believed God to be their God. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of Jacob. We see the God of Christianity presented in the Old Testament as the God of Israel. And he was, in a very real way, the God of Israel. He was the God who made a covenant with Abraham. He was the God who called Abram from a land out of the Chaldeans and and, and sent him and said, I will make you a people, I will give you a nation, you will be my people, and I will be your God. God established his covenant with Abram. And the descendants of Abram, the descendants of Abraham, would be the people of God. But in a very real way, even in the Old Testament, God is a God, not only to Israel, but He is a God to the Gentiles. Is He not? Amen. If you, look at, if you look back through the redemptive history, as soon as Israel enters into the as soon as Israel enters into the promised land, the very first person that spies come in contact with is who? Rahab, a harlot, who lives there in the wall in Jericho. And as the spies go in, and as, as, as they're they protected by Rahab, they enter into the land of Canaan, and the very first participant, the very first inhabitant of the promised land that is not Israelite is Rahab, a prostitute, who would eventually become in the lineage of Jesus. And then we see the story of Ruth, and Boaz, a Moabite, an enemy of God, being grafted in all throughout the Old Testament God clearly communicates that he is not only the God of the Israelites, but he is the God of the Gentiles as well. In fact, go with me, if you will, to the book of Genesis chapter 12, and I want us to look at God's initial covenant that he made with Abram, and I'm going to show you how in this very initial covenant that God demonstrated his grace and his mercy and his salvation not only to the Jews, but to the entire world. See, I believe that Israel, the nation of Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, had an incomplete understanding of the covenant that God made with Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Let's start in verse 1. You, you, you can't just start in verse 3. I'm sorry, Chris. Now the Lord said to Abram go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house and from the land which I will to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Abram, in the descendants of Abraham, through the lineage of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesse, and David, and Jesus. Through that lineage, through that direct lineage from Abram to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to Jesse, to David, from David, we see the son of David, Jesus. In the book of Matthew, Jesus' lineage is traced back from his father, his earthly father Joseph, through the earthly lineage, back to David, back to Jesse, to Judah, to Jacob, Isaac, to Abraham. Because in the lineage of Abraham, all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic group, every people group, will receive salvation. Every people group. We looked on Easter Sunday. Everybody's favorite Easter passage out of Revelation chapter 5. And we saw that at the throne of God. There will be a representative from every tribe. And every tongue. And every nation. And every people group. And so we see. That Israel, I believe, had a very incomplete understanding of the, of the role of the covenant. That they believed God to be their God. They believed in a very arrogant and very, a very prideful way that the God of Israel is the God of exclusively Israel. That no one else can benefit from the God of Israel because he is our God. And I think in a very real way that Americans think this exact same way. We think that God speaks King James English. We think that, that, that we have the exclusive rights to, to this Jesus. We think that, that we do church the right way. We think that, that if you're going to, to preach Jesus or you're going to have a worship service or you're going to conduct church, it needs to be done like the church does it in the West. It needs to be done this way. Well, I can tell you, church, I've been to the East. I've been to other countries, and I've seen the Holy Spirit move in a multitude of different languages. I've seen worship happening whenever I stand in the middle of a church and I can't understand anything, but I can definitely tell you that the Holy Spirit is there. And I've seen a pastor stand up and preach and proclaim the good news of the gospel in a language that I don't even recognize. And I see men repent of their sin and come to salvation. I see—I saw a man in India who was given a hearing aid. He was given a hearing aid on Monday because he was deaf. He came back on Tuesday and he gave us the hearing aid back. We said, is there something wrong? He said, no, I don't need it after you prayed for me. I can hear. It wasn't because we're doing church a certain way, but it's because God was there. And I believe in a very real way, we have an arrogant understanding of the gospel. We, we think that, that we have a monopoly on Jesus. We think that we in the, in the West and we in America, that, that we figured out this church thing. Well, I submit to you that it's very possible that we haven't got this church thing figured out. We haven't got this Jesus thing figured out. In fact, I believe in a very real way that many of those Christians who are suffering and who are giving their life for the gospel in India and in China and in South America and in the Middle East, that they have this Jesus thing figured out much more than we do. Much more than we do. All that to be said, Israel believed. They believed God to be their God. And Matthew is writing to present to them that you know what? God. Jesus is not only the Messiah for the Israelites, but he's the Messiah for the Gentiles as well. Now, this event is very similar to the event in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus feeds the 5,000. But I want us to look at this, and I want us to ask the question, what has taken place since Matthew chapter 13 when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and now here in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus feeds the 4,000? Well, obviously, the first thing that's taken place is Jesus has fed the 5,000. And who was there with Jesus when he fed the 5,000? His disciples. Remember Jesus took the five loaves of bread and the two fish and he broke it to his disciples and they served the people? And then immediately following that, the scripture says that Jesus got in a boat and he went away, or the disciples got in a boat and they went away to the other side of the sea and Jesus went away to be alone, right? Well, while Jesus was Going away to be alone, remember there was a storm and the waves were contrary and the waves were tormenting the boat. And then out on the middle of the sea, they see Jesus, the disciples see Jesus walking on the water. So we have Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus walking on water. And if you look here in Matthew chapter 15, verses 29, 30, and 31, for three days, Jesus is healing the lame, he's healing the blind, he is healing uh, the dumb. He is performing miracles after miracle after miracles for three days. So this is what the disciples witness. Jesus feeds probably somewhere closer to the ballpark of fifteen thousand people. Jesus walks on water. Jesus heals the lame. He heals the blind. He heals the dumb. And then they ask Jesus, "Hey, where are we going to get some food?" We laugh. We laugh because they were slow to understand, right? Are we not slow to understand? I've got three children, and I love my children with all they are, but sometimes they're slow to understand. If you're a mom or dad, does this question ever come up? What's for supper? What are we going to eat for lunch? Mom, dad, I'm hungry. What's for supper? They come to us regularly and And sometimes we get frustrated because we don't have a clue what's for supper. It may be macaroni, it may be cereal, it may be uh, you know there, there's something in the pantry. go figure it out but but they come to us and and it's as if they are they're terrified that that we're not going to feed them. It's as if it's as if we're going to come to a to to a point and say they're going to come to us and say mom i'm starving what's what's for dinner and and, and we're gonna say you know what we're just settled up. you're going hungry today and i get so angry and and, and i look at him and i say in 12 years has there ever been a time where we haven't fed you well no but today is going to be the day right today is going to be the day the, 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 this is it this is going to be the day where, where all of a sudden we just, we we forfeit our responsibility as parents and we no longer feel the obligation. We feel that at 12 years old, you've, you've figured enough out and you've come to the point where you can provide for yourself. No, we're going to feed, now it may be cereal, it may be peanut butter and jelly, it may be macaroni, it may not be a, a, a seven course meal, but we're going to feed you. Just relax, go play your PlayStation, go, go, go play your iPod or whatever it is you do and, and we'll take care of dinner. Every day for their entire lives, from the moment they open their eyes, we have provided for them three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and sometimes four and five meals. But they come to us every day. Mom, we're hungry. What's for dinner? Dad, we're hungry. What's for dinner? This is where the disciples were. They had seen Jesus take five loaves of bread and two fish and multiply it so much so that they had 12 basketfuls left over. They had seen Jesus walk on the water and even call Peter out of the boat. They had seen Jesus take the lame and heal him, open the eyes of the blind, open the mouths of the dumb. They had seen Jesus in a very real and tangible way. They were with the guy who brought back the hearing aid. In a very real way. They witnessed it. They were participants. They were the ones delivering the food. And they come to Jesus and they say, how are we going to feed this person? They were slow to understand. Do we not realize that God is faithful? I want us to take just a few brief moments and think back over your life. Think back over the difficult times in your life and ask yourself, has God been faithful? What about those times whenever you didn't know how that mortgage payment was going to get paid? What about that that moment whenever you didn't know if, if your child was going to recover from that illness? What about that moment when your child or your spouse or your loved one didn't recover from that illness? Was God faithful? Psalm 34 verse 8 says this. The psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Experience the goodness of God even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of pain, taste and see the Lord is good. The psalmist also says in Psalm 119, verse 68, he says, thou art good, and thou do good. Teach me your statutes. Later on, the psalmist says in verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. The law of my mouth is better for me than a thousand gold pieces. The psalmist said, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Even in hardships, even in pain, even in difficulties, we can see the faithfulness of God demonstrated over and over and over again. Israel needed to be reminded of God's faithfulness time and time again. I want to call your attention to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter (coughs) 6. As we get to the book of Deuteronomy, does anybody know what the book of Deuteronomy means? Any Old Testament scholars? The book, of the, the book of Deuteronomy literally means second law. Why? Because Israel had already received the law. God had to tell it to them again because they were slow to understand. Because they were slow to remember. So Deuteronomy is a retelling, is the second time Israel hears the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see this, this, this passage that Israel has, has clung to. This has become the Shema. This is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. But I want us to look at how God gives Israel these commandments. That's how, how, how God lays out the, the, the framework for the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to begin reading. we we'll begin reading in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding to you shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you will bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Moses tells Israel, he writes this, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. And then not only that, teach these things to the future generations. Write them on your forehead. Write them on your hands. Write them on the doorpost of your house. Write them on the gate so that when you go in your house and when you come out of your house, so that when you stand at the mirror, whenever you watch television, whenever you're on the phone, whenever you open the refrigerator, write these things. Why? Because we're slow to remember. Because we're slow to understand. Because we forget that even though God has fed us three meals a day, every day from the moment that we opened our eyes, even though he has been faithful to us time and time again, we're going to be just like the disciples. And as soon as the trial comes, we're going to say, what are we going to do, God? How am I going to make it to tomorrow? Even though God has been faithful for 40, 50, 60 generations. We come to this crisis in our lives. So what am I going to do? We need to be reminded. The enemy of faith, church, is forgetfulness. We forget how faithful God is. We forget how faithful God is. I do want to look back at Matthew chapter 15 and pull some principles from the text. Matthew chapter 15, as Jesus enters into this this period, uh, uh, he has just healed the multitudes. Verse 32, Jesus calls his disciples and he says this. He says, I feel compassion, verse verse 32. Jesus says, I feel compassion for the people. I feel compassion for the people. Now, we've already understood, we've uh, we've already demonstrated that the people here in Matthew chapter 15 were not Jews. They were not the Jewish people. Yet Jesus had compassion for them. I imagine it was very difficult for the Israelites to have compassion on these people because they were not like them. I believe the disciples, as they saw these people, these Canaanites, these worshipers of false gods, that they said, these people are not like us. Send them away so that they can go get food. Yet Jesus had compassion on them. also want to point out that their needs were great and their needs were varied. There were people there who were blind, people there who were lame, people there who were, who were afflicted with, with uh, uh, the scripture says they were dumb, they were mute, they couldn't speak, probably couldn't hear. Their afflictions were many. And I would argue that the physical manifestations of their needs were simply a, a microcosm of the deeper spiritual need that they had. Their needs were great, their needs were varied. But not only that, Jesus meets them there in their need. Notice that while they were lame, while they were blind, while they were deaf and dumb, while they were hurting, Jesus did not require anything of them. He didn't require them to be circumcised. He didn't require them to go to the synagogue. He didn't require them to present present themselves to the priest. He required nothing of them. He met them in their needs and demonstrated grace and mercy. And then after he had healed them, he fed them. He met them in their need and he satisfied them fully. I love the language of the text. If you go back to Matthew chapter 15, verse 35, He directed the multitudes to sit down, and He took seven loaves of fish and gave thanks, and He broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples in turn to the multitude. Look at verse 37. And they all ate, and what does the language say? They were satisfied. Jesus meets them in their need, and He satisfies them fully. But I want to bring our attention now to the disciples. The disciples' participation in this miracle was a participation in obedience. Did the disciples perform a miracle? No. What did the disciples do? Jesus gave them very specific instructions. Look at verse 36. He took the seven loaves of bread and the fish, giving thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples... And the disciples in turn to the multitude. The disciples' job was to serve bread. That was their job. God was in the miracle working business. Go back through history of redemption. Go back through the history of God working in the life of his church. Whenever God parts the Red Sea, he tells Moses to do what? He says, Moses, you're going to come to the edge of the Red Sea, and when you get there, I want you to part the Red Sea. No. What's he tell Moses to do? Hold out your staff. A simple instruction. He says, Moses, hold out your staff. And as Moses held out your staff, the Scripture says that God parted the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry ground. If We look at the story of Gideon. What does he tell Gideon to do? He says, go get a bunch of lanterns and a bunch of pots. Surround the people. Gideon said, I'm no military genius. I I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to go get a bunch of lanterns, and I'm going to go get a bunch of clay pots, and I'm going to do what you've told me to do. And God performs a miracle. If you go back through the Old Testament, if you go back through history after history, God tells Elijah, he says, go and build an altar like you've done time and time again. Go and build an altar. And as you build an altar, I will call down. I will pour out fire upon this altar, and I'll consume it. Elijah's task was simply to be obedient. God performed the miracle. Paul and Silas, as they were in, as they were in prison, chained to the wall, God gave them a very specific, heartfelt instruction. He said, praise God in your afflictions. And they began to sing praises. And they began to sing hymns. And at midnight, God opened the doors of the prison and threw off the chains. All throughout history, anytime there is a miracle, the people of God are called to simply small acts of obedience. Typically mundane acts. Hold out your staff. Serve bread. God performs the miracle. Our response, church, is not to do the miraculous. Our response, our role, is to do the mundane. Is to be a place of love, compassion. When a child comes in from a broken home, show them love. We see a family that's been riddled and destroyed by addiction. Our response as the church is to show them love, compassion. Simple act of obedience, and watch God do the miraculous. Watch God take that which is broken and heal. And restore and redeem. The disciples role. Was simply to serve bread. Our role. Is simply to serve bread. To love the unlovable. Not to do the miraculous. So as we close here this morning. I want to remind us. That God works the miracles. We must be obedient. God works the miracles. We as the church are called to be obedient. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are in the miracle working business. That You take broken men, faulty men, You take tax collectors, felons, fishermen, and You perform mighty works of miracles when we are simply obedient. God, this morning, may you find us, your church, Redeemer, obedient. Maybe this morning, God has laid something upon your heart. Maybe you need to bring a meal to your neighbor. Maybe God is calling you to to serve bread. Maybe God is calling you to a simple act of obedience that he may use you to do miraculous things for his kingdom. Today, may ye find us obedient. Maybe this morning you're here and you have a very specific need You're lame, you're blind, you're deaf, you're mute. Maybe you have a very physical need. Maybe you have a very spiritual need. God wants to meet those needs and he wants to fully satisfy you in Jesus. In Christ, the scripture tells us that they were fully satisfied. During this time of invitation, we'll invite you to come. Maybe if you need to come to this altar and pray, maybe you need to come to this altar and make a commitment to the Lord that you're going to be obedient in one small act, one mundane act. Maybe you need to grab someone next to you and come to this altar and pray. Maybe you need to get alone with the Holy Spirit. During this time of invitation, I want to pray that you would be obedient to the Lord this morning. God, may your Holy Spirit have his freedom to work in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.